Hello and assalamu alaikum everyone. Welcome to the medical talk. Today we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Sharjeel Ahmed. Dr. Sharjeel is currently working at, at the Infectious Disease Department at the University of Illinois and is also the director of the Positive Health Solution, which is a uh, program that helps uh, people living with HIV and AIDS and helps provide healthcare for them. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sharjeel. It is an honor having you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I would like to start the conversation by getting to know a little bit about your early life, to understand a bit where were you born and raised, what did your early education look like? So, yeah, uh, I am, I consider myself a Karachi. i uh, been here in Karachi since uh, I was three years of age. So, Sipele, my family uh, is uh, Sipi slash Lahore, and then we moved here to Karachi uh, since my dad worked uh, at Jinnah Hospital uh, in Karachi. So, yeah, we are a third generation of doctors. Dada, Nana, Khalas, Pupos, Mahmoud, they're all doctors. Nobody forced me to do it. Uh, but for natural inclination, scientists, you know, you always have that inclination. And then uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, frankly. And uh, even I think in my A-levels, I did uh, biology, chemistry, and math, not physics, which time and uh, I applied to Lums and AQ and somehow got into both. <laughs> then I went to Lums because the semester was starting first. Tried my hand for three weeks. Didn't like, didn't, I was doing fine academically, wasn't enjoying it, and then joined AQ and never regretted it. So that's the <laughs> summary on that. But yeah, uh, my inclination was always towards sciences, but uh, I think it took a bit of a trial and error by spending three weeks at Lums to find out, yep, I want to do medicine. Yeah, I think that it's good that you tried lumps so that you now then you knew that you wanted to do medicine for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad I had the opportunity because, yeah, sometimes you, you can't. And for, I mean, that's the thing, I think, in Pakistan, um, when we joined med school, we are we are kids, you know, we're just yeah. 17, 18 years old. Uh, in the U.S., you'll see they'll do undergrad four years and they do a four year med school. And so I think people are a bit more mature. Obviously, then the downside is these guys have a huge medical school, undergrad loans, student loans to pay off as well. Like in a, a lot of these people, when they do it, they really want to do it. I think a lot of kids in Pakistan are pressured by family or whatever circumstances. So that's very different. A lot of students I've seen are like uh, 30, 40 years old. I, I think I had one resident, I remember, in training. she was 50 years old. Wow. Uh, she joined, yeah, she was uh, apparently a world-renowned uh, speech pathologist or something and decided that once her kids are out of the house and stuff, she wanted to do something different with her life. So we had tons of engineers and stuff for who, and other people who for whom medicine is a second career. And these guys were older and they were ready to face all those challenges. So they definitely were more mature and knew what they were getting themselves into. Yeah, I think that's great. I think there should be a year after you get done with your A-levels or at least six months or one year where you decide and uh, see what you really want to do because during your A-levels, you're just so busy with your studies and academics that you don't really get the time to understand your passions and what you really want to do. Yeah, it's yeah. I wish we could have that. I know it's a lot of cultural and stuff. I'm sure if you tell your... I think most of us, if you tell our parents, hey, you want to just take a year off after A-levels and get betas? so it's yeah so that i think it's a lot of it is cultural as well but over here yeah you will see people saying oh i'm taking a year off and you know exploring the world exploring what i want and then when they join 
they they are ready to get into what they want to do yeah so. when you get into medical school obviously uh, during the first few years and after you graduate there is a lot of pressure peer pressure as well and pressure from your family to choose a career pathway after you graduate a post graduate pathway it's either the us the uk staying back in pakistan or other options so why did you choose to go to the us yeah i think uh, i mean if you know with i think with our fund i think the natural inclination a lot of graduates go there anyway so i don't know it's khedki chal you can say or whatever i think naturally everybody looks at that i mean people go to uk i think the with the us the one thing is again i think the healthcare system the way it's set up in uk and stuff you it'll take it sometimes you know you can do all your requisite training and stuff it can take you sometimes a longer time to be an attending physician or consultant because of the way the nhs is uh, set up for the us yes you know it's very structured you do 3 years of internal medicine or whatever 5 years of general surgery or 7 years of neuro and then you are done you're an attending physician like you don't wait for a spot to become available but you transition to the next level so i think that's the attraction uh, to that plus you know obviously as kids and stuff you all everyone wants to go to the us and stuff like that so i think but overall yeah uh, i think the us i think this uh, for me you know once you turn to your colleagues and stuff ask i think the program was a bit more structured and had a finite duration where you will be you know you will remain uh, a trainee or be under somebody uh it was a, you know you knew exactly in 3 years you're going to be done or 5 years or whatever you want to do then you have x number of years to become a sub specialist in whatever you feel so i think that's what probably attracted me more that i knew i'm going to be done in x amount of time and that's it that that's a good that's a good side to the us system so yeah. um how did you choose your specialty because a lot of people like my friends and my colleagues they are very confused about what specialty they want to go into yeah uh well i mean first i mean i knew in medical school okay i don't want to be a surgeon my dad's a neurosurgeon and i didn't like that lifestyle <laughs> so uh i knew that you know uh, yes it's more glamorous and stuff but i think i had the aptitude uh for that anyway so when you can turn medicine karenge and then we can think about what i want to do and uh when i joined my residency uh i was like yeah i like the hemoc like the micro you know the basic pathology and stuff behind the oncology and the hematology part as well and i think a lot of it is your the mentors you come across in med school as well so we had some fantastic teachers there and then the micro actually enjoyed that too but i didn't think about id because i think in pakistan at that time id was not an established i think we just i think the fellowship in id fcps has just started what a decade or maybe a bit more than ago. so it wasn't uh, on my radar uh, and i thought i was going to do hemonc and stuff so but i did i uh, chose some electives here and there uh, you know i did hemonc elective uh, and then uh, I I thought I was going to do endocrine in the middle like, like maybe half it through I did electives in that and then um I think the endocrine was fine but I think the way with I ended up with ID was again it's got got to be the mentor so when I did my ID elective here during residency I enjoyed it so much I had the last two weeks off of my rotation I actually canceled it and did the whole month and my mentors actually enjoyed looks like they enjoyed working with me so by the end of my a uh, month of id elective they with the section chief who's also the program she's like you know if you are interested in doing id you know you can more or less consider you will have a spot at that place uh 
So, I mean, it wasn't a pre-match. I mean, there's no pre-match in fellowship, but at least it was kind of like, I was reassured that if I apply for fellowship over there, I could apply other places as well. And I think it was also kind of comfortable and easier just doing it at the same place with your residency. These people knew, I knew these guys. I was inspired by these mentors. I think they were not just good ID docs, they were good internists and just good people overall. So that's uh, how I ended up uh, landing an ID. I mean, I thought some of the mentors I had were the smartest docs in the whole hospital. So it's like, if I can be just like five, 10% of what they are, uh, I'll feel mission accomplished basically. That's great. You know, talking about mentors, uh, a lot of me medical students in Pakistan, they want to get mentored and work with doctors from the US or from the UK, wherever they want to pursue their career after their medical school. So what do you think is the best way to approach uh, doctors who you want to work with in the future? Yeah, so the problem I think is having it with the US, I know is a lot of medical like uh, programs are restricting observers and stuff so if you're not a you so if you're not a u.s grad they're not allowing observership and training i'm having the same problem here because the ufi system is not allowing any foreign grads uh for observership we used to have some way back but they've stopped doing that so that creates a huge burden um i think the first thing i and i still get tons of emails and i feel so bad about writing back and saying you know i'm sorry i can't because the rule of the thing but it's good. I think there's always no harm in asking uh, first, trying to identify. I'm sure, uh, I hope, I know among circles, people have, you know, uh, I remember in residency, people had those uh, lists of residency programs, which are IMG friendly. I'm wondering if somebody can just start that kind of thing about places which will accept uh, uh, foreign graduates as uh, uh, for uh, mentorship, for observerships and stuff like that. If we can develop something like that, uh, but I think, again, I think the good thing is also nowadays we have LinkedIn, we have all these other outlets. So there's always no harm in asking, reaching out, and you get lucky on that. Uh, other thing is also sometimes ask the doctors you work with, for example, who are UK or US trained who are working with you in Pakistan at your institution and stuff. They may know of people who will be able to. And again, I think over the time you realize contacts and networking is as important in medicine as in any other field, be it business or anything else. So I think it's more about, yeah, you find somebody probably you are comfortable with that, you know, whether you're at medical school, some, some teacher inspires you and stuff, ask them, maybe they can take you under their wing or they know somebody who's in the US or UK, take you under the wing and then you never know. It's, it always, uh, you know, I think with these, sometimes luck plays a role as well but yeah you never if you don't ask you won't know i can tell you an example of this person we had here who is um who found somebody from like from uh pakistan he's like hey, hey do you have a spot and it's like hey I, I can't mentor you but i know somebody else who's not from pakistan but because of his job description is technically he was not an employee of the university and it's like he will take him in and he kept him under his wing he was working here for two years doing all kind of research and for his residency this guy went out of the way he wrote to like 50 different program directors called them personally uh trying to get this guy's interview positions and stuff and under, he ultimately ended up in the same fellowship as his like the mentor was a gi specialist he ended up at the gi fellowship program but it wasn't like it was like you know or whatever he got it because of his sheer hard work his cv showed the story as well. And yes, he did have that support that somebody was able to back his credentials saying, 
I know this guy personally. I think over time, as you probably, this personal, somebody who can vouch for you personally becomes very, very important. So you need somebody who will be able to spend 10, five, 10 minutes of your time to make those calls for you and stuff like that. If you can find a mentor in the in Pakistan who can say, hey, yeah, I trained this program, but yeah, my friend and so-and-so is working. Maybe I can make a call for you or an email for you. That's great. And I think that's what it is. Don't be hesitant in asking people who you feel comfortable with mm-hmm. and stuff, asking them for help. Uh, maybe, you know, they may be able to help you while in Pakistan or they may be able to find somebody else who's, you know, a friend of a friend of a friend like that. So uh, I would say, is, yeah, I think that's the way uh, I would say. Just think of it as, you know, when it's the Pakistan or the Rishta aunties goes, so yeah, if you don't ask, you will never know. So yeah, don't be afraid to ask people who you may inspire you and stuff and see. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but that's okay. Don't give up. It's all about looking for opportunities, I guess, and connecting with people and trying. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the step one exam is pass and fail now. The score has been eliminated. So what do you think that IMGs, especially from Pakistan, can do differently to stand out among all of the applicants, the U.S. graduates and the IMGs, other IMGs as well? Yeah, that's just a major setback. And I think a lot of IMGs here uh, feel very strongly about because that was one thing which would distinguish us from the rest. Because, you know, these guys, when they're going to look, that's the only thing you need judges on, if anything else. Uh, and then uh, that's what we've talked about, that a graduate from, I don't know, a Harvard Med who may be at the bottom of the class just because he's there, may be given preference over somebody who's an excellent candidate from, you know, Dow or Lamek Pal or AQ or wherever. Um, I think one thing, I guess, probably step two is probably going to take more importance now. Uh, so that's something we need to focus on. And second, probably, again, letters of reference from people who are in the U.S. So it could be a U.S. trained physician you're working in Pakistan, but ideally, if you can get be able to do electives in the U.S. and get letters from them and shine over there, again, it's all about references, personal contacts and stuff. Somebody can write a letter for you or when the time comes is agreeable to make calls on your behalf, I think that's what it's going to be. So I think in summary, I think step two and having U.S. letters ideally for electives or from a U.S. trained physician is probably going to be more important. So you mentioned electives. So how what is the best way to get an elective? How should medical students approach this? Yeah, contacts is probably, I think, the big one. I think uh, I'll tell you like, with me, I think with AQ, it was kind of good because we had a good network and so you kind of knew which programs to apply to and stuff. And the the seniors who were went there for lectures before, they would kind of help guide us and stuff. Okay. Yeah, we went there and this is what you need to do. You apply, this department will take it, you know, students and stuff. And I feel again, like now somebody can sit with an Excel spreadsheet and kind of, it's, I think it needs to be a payway for mechanics. If you've gone through lectures yourself, you, I think you owe it to others and stuff as well to kind of have that information, maybe have some kind of repository and stuff, and then everybody adds to it over time. But yeah, ask your friends, ask your peers, ask your seniors, again, ask your mentors who you're already working with uh, to try to find spots. Sometimes as I said, yeah, you may, they may not have an open elective and stuff, but you know, if somebody is helpful or somebody can figure out a way, they'll find you to accommodate in there. And yeah, ideally, as soon as you, you know, ideally, you should probably start looking for it as soon as possible. I think the big thing also we have to worry with us is visas. 
Yeah. So you have to give yourself time. So, you know, doing it two or three months probably is, uh, yeah, I would say is look for about, you know, three to six months, six months earlier, the better it is, because that gives you time to accommodate for any kind of unexpected emergencies, anything like that, and start looking out, yeah, well in advance. The, you know, the sooner you start doing it, I think the better it, it is and less stressful it will be, because I think the biggest thing for us also, I feel for electives is again, the whole visa thing, it can be so unpredictable. I did not do any electives in the US because uh, I remember when I applied for my uh, elective, I had a sub-internship at Henry Ford Hospital and um, I got it and it was a month before my, my I went for my visa and I was supposed to go. There was a bomb blast out the US consulate, the old US consulate in Karachi next to Marriott. So they closed it. So I ended up doing all my electives in Pakistan and I had a good clinical experience. But yeah, those letters can make a big difference. Yeah. So yeah, please be a, a apply, I would say six months, start looking around six months or even earlier before you plan to do your electives. And hopefully then, yeah, you can accommodate for any emergencies or anything like that. Yeah. Visa issues are very unfortunate, I guess. A lot of people face these issues and it's unfortunate that we have to go through this but um talking about electives and all of the things that we can do apart from step one do you think that research has a big role to play research publications because there's a lot of focus nowadays in medical colleges regarding the number of publications you have or the uh, kind of research you have so do you think program directors look at uh, all of these factors as well yeah i think again i think the problem was happening is because of the whole step one stuff so all these other things are taking more importance because Let's face it, I mean, uh, we are IMGs, uh, we are competing against local graduates. Mm -hmm. So there is gonna be a vibe. You have to prove you're better than them in all different aspects and stuff. So if anything, you can add to your CV, having research, uh, going to medical poster presentations and stuff, it definitely will help support and make your CV look much, much stronger. Again, because you're competing against people from all over the world at that point, not just the US graduates and stuff. There'll be people from China, India, all these countries, Syria, I mean, there's all these different countries you're uh, working. There'll be people who have green cards and already as citizens, all their IMDs and stuff. So you have to have something which shows that, you know, which makes a program director think, you know what, I'm, I wanna take a chance on this person. This person doesn't have a visa, whatever, but you know what? I would rather have this person because I think it would be a good addition to the program. So uh, I'm not saying that you try to uh, take your uh, focus away from your education and stuff completely. But yeah, if you can get some good papers in, uh, I don't know, it's a big number, I don't know, three, four, whatever, maybe more, the more, the better. I mean, that's the thing. I had one, I'll tell you, the times were different. I had one paper and I think two posters and stuff. I had a few colleagues who had 35 publications and 40 before you finished med school. But you know, and the end of the day, you go into residency, you come out the same board certified in medicine if you get into a slot. So in the long term, it doesn't matter, but yeah, it can help you get, the problem now is things are becoming so much more competitive now, it's just harder for IMGs to get. So every little bit you do counts. So yeah, having that research thing is definitely gonna help you. The more you can do it, the better but yeah don't lose sight of your education focus because yeah i think step two will still be like right up there and um 
I mean, I'm not a program director right now, but yeah, I've been around in this institute for a while and I know what conversations they have. And that's the first thing. I mean, now the, the past is different, but that's the first thing they'll always, oh yeah, this guy has a lot of research, but his depth score is this. Mm. So that can go against you. So yeah, your, so yeah, uh, the research will be an adjunct or a supplement to your CV, but it's not the only thing. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, what qualities apart from research or uh, electives or all of the clinical experience do program directors look for in the applicants? Yeah, uh, again, they are looking for people who have a personality who can communicate and stuff. And again, it's not, uh, you know, just bookish stuff. I'll give you examples. When you write a personal statement, it's very important. Sometimes when people are too eager, you can tell, you can, you can tell easily someone has picked up a thesaurus and picked all these fancy words in there and tried to shower and literally in there and i'll tell you we they sometimes we will get share of those personal statements like people are laughing or like scratching their heads like oh my god i can't believe the people are writing statements like oh we we are the creamiest of the creamiest it's like you meant creme de la creme or something else but in their eagerness to sound all fancy and stuff it's <laughs> it just turns into like it starts overshadowing whatever steps go because they're like this person can't even talk or write complete proper sentences so you know when they when you come for interviews and stuff uh, the day night before they'll take you out for a dinner and you interact that's another time and sometimes the chief resident is there and he's he or she is talking to them and they try to figure out this person has a personality or not because it is some people will have had like 99 percent at score scores of 260 but they can't communicate with people at all and that's what can shine through and it can put you up there like, yeah, this guy is brilliant on paper, but he cannot converse at all. Uh, it's not about oh, having a, an American accent or a British accent. No, that's okay. That's not a big deal. But yeah, you need to be able to talk to your peers because yeah, you're going to be working in close quarters with these people, you know, your interns, your residents and stuff. So if you don't... Uh, if you can't communicate with them properly, if you cannot be a team player, if, if they get that vibe about this guy is his own one-person ship and stuff, you it will stand out. And, you know, program directors and stuff, they learn over time how to pick those things. I think overall, I'm sure you will, you know, you've seen patients and stuff. You can pick out these little clues. And again, you know, you, you don't, you, you have to be yourself. There is no doubt when you go, you don't have to be if you try to be fake, easy, it becomes it becomes very very quick. You're just being too eager and stuff like that. But again, you just use your common sense. I can tell you the example of somebody I knew who was very brilliant, had amazing scores uh, on their uh, steps and everything else. Had all the research and stuff, and uh, you know honors and stuff. But I know somebody who went to the interview. This is remember fresh after nine eleven. Uh, so went to the interview and so why do you want to come? And I can't believe this person said, I'm come here to convert the infidels. And uh, I mean, it was just, and needless to say, this guy didn't get into a single residency program. So it's just like, you cannot say such things. And actually you shouldn't say, you shouldn't have these kind of thoughts when you're coming over here. You're gonna be in a big multicultural, multilingual society. You have to learn how to respect and tolerate and stuff. Basically, but yeah, it's like you be genuine and stuff. Don't be eager and stuff, but uh, yeah, make sure when you write your personal statements and stuff, for example, make sure somebody 
who's well well versed in English has gone through it, reviewed the draft with you, for example. When you're going there, uh, again, uh, ask, the, ask the questions and stuff, but again, you don't want to come off as too eager. I know it's hard to say. You don't want to come off as too eager, but you also don't want to come off as, oh, completely blah, man. oh, this guy's not interested in our program yeah. and stuff. But yeah, it's uh, trying to interact with the peers and stuff, uh, have a conversation, tell them something interesting about yourself. People like hearing the stories about your life, about you know your childhood, some favorite memory. Share those kind of stories and I think it should work out fine. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so you have done a master's in public health as well. How have you seen your healthcare practice uh, and your uh, approach towards medicine change after that? Yeah, MPH is not for everyone. Uh, it helps and stuff. It can help in a few ways. Um, if you're really into these, I mean, MPH can come, depending on where you do, it can come in different tracks. Some places will offer like a, a major in statistics, major in public health administration and stuff. Now, you know, if you want to sometimes go into hospital administration or something later, you don't have to have an MPH, but it kind of gives you that, cred that credibility and validity. This guy is actually studied and he knows what they're doing. Uh, MPH can help you uh, have even like a plan B, like, you know, it gets hard to get in. And sometimes you're like, oh, you know, you tried a few times getting residency and stuff, but having that degree will help you open our territory. But you can go into public health, you can go CDC, uh, epidemiological like health offices, EIS service and stuff, or you manage pandemics, you can go into university teaching and stuff like that. It can buy you some time while you're looking at your options as well. I know, so I think uh, uh, our current dean of Khan, Dr. Adil Heather, who's a world-renowned trauma surgeon, I know uh, he was a few years senior to me, uh, but he, I think he was doing an MPH at Johns Hopkins before he started trauma surgery and stuff. So it also gave him credence. He's now a big researcher. Also, same thing. Sometimes it buys you time in lieu of an observership or a fellowship because you're rubbing shoulders with people who may be highly involved in research in that relevant field, like you're working with researchers, working with the surgery department or whatever, you want to do ophthalmology or the highly competitive ones. Again, uh, you may come across them during your routine research or you may say your thesis wants, you, you want to do a particular field and decide to do your MPH thesis or research focused on whatever field you want to go in there. And that way you get to know the faculty, the program directors uh, that way. And again, then you get a US letter and, you know, it's like, hey, yeah, I know this guy. He's the dean of the School of Public Health. Or, oh, yeah, I did this so-and-so research project with this guy. He's mentoring this one. So, obviously, this person must be good. Yeah. So, it does help you on that. It's not absolute, but, yeah, it can help you out in certain ways. Um, say, so, in Illinois, for example, I know in the county health departments here, they won't have a director of the county. Therefore, the county health department, MPH is a is a, a necessary qualification. Yeah. I think not all county departments are necessarily MDs, but they all have MPH yeah. somewhere there. So yeah, it does open alternate career choices, uh, but it's not the end, end game at all. But yeah, as I said, it can sometimes buy you time while you're looking at your options for residency and stuff. And sometimes it helps you rub shoulders with the very people you want to work with during residency as well. I think it's a good opportunity to learn and connect with more people. So that's great. Yeah. 
So uh, moving on to the education side and uh, under undergraduate education in particular. So uh, do you think that there is a need to make changes to the undergraduate curriculum, especially in Pakistan, because the world of medicine is moving so fast and um, especially in terms of teaching methods, do you think that it is time to move on from PowerPoint presentations only and focus more on video learning and animations and visual learning? And um improve our teaching methods uh, a lot of people who have come on this podcast have talked about flipped classroom methods and problem-based learning so do you think we should move on to that especially in pakistan yeah um i mean pakistan yeah i think the biggest problem i think in pakistan is also people i sometimes feel you know the people who've been there forever sometimes are more resistant to change but change is inevitable we have to move on and stuff i think even like problem-based learning when it came and stuff it took a while for it to get implemented in Pakistan and stuff, uh, the way our curriculum is uh, geared and stuff. Um, we definitely need to, yeah. And I think, especially with the COVID pandemic, I think it's taught us that we have to come up with new and innovative methods because you never know what's coming next and stuff. So we have to evolve with time and come up with these. Uh, I think a lot of stuff also comes from this whole hierarchical school of thought and stuff. It's just the culture over there here as well, because it's it's kind of hard to implement. I think sometimes it's like Tum But here, it, it, I'll tell you, there is it's so different because when I came for residency, my parents like, hey, call me Nate. It's like it's again, we cannot do that. I still call him Doctor So and So. Or as soon as you graduate, you can call your attendings by your first name which is absolutely unheard of or unthinkable in Pakistan and stuff. And yeah, you feel, it feels weird, but people do, I still can't do it. I'll tell you, I still can't do it. But I'm just saying, I think a lot of it, it's a good thing. I think, you know, we like to respect the elders, but also means sometimes there is stagnation mm-hmm. and, and evolution in Pakistan and stuff. So definitely, I think we need to look at, again, this is the 21st century. We need to look at using video links and this zoo everything else or whatever resources other institutions or the world are using at the disposal we have to use simulation and stuff i think has become big in medicine and stuff i think we need to jump on that big time because i think it's everywhere now mm-hmm. so definitely yeah there's a, there's a lot of room for improvement i'm not saying again i've i've gone through the old system and stuff i i'm before pbl and all those things and stuff of course, I was always like, our system was the best and stuff, but obviously you learn over time. In in the long term, usually when you go in medicine, you get the creme de la creme, the smart people, whatever system you feel, if you give them the right tools, they will survive and they'll do well overall. But yeah, we need to get up to speed because, and we need to keep up with the world for sure. So um, uh, my last question is that how do you see the medical education and medical practice 50 years from now? Do you see art? Because there's a lot of uh, talk about artificial intelligence and new, new technology. So how do you see that? What are your thoughts on that? 50 years. Wow. That's, that's I don't even 10 years. It's going to be hard to predict. But yeah, AI is going to be big. I, I definitely think that's going to be the big, a lot of these algorithms and yeah, stuff. There's a lot of decision, which I mean, radiology and stuff. I think they're already looking over there. I still want to believe there'll be still a value to an actual human sitting behind the screen mm-hmm. and dictating because end of the day, even now with telemedicine and stuff like that, with all the stuff we do, you know, we still need that human touch. Yeah. Patients like that human touch better. They want to be examined 
felt touched by an actual physician who's actually talking and not a mechanical voice and artificial sound and stuff. So I would like to believe that you'll still have a role over there. Uh, um, it's, I, I, I think it's going to be different in different parts of the world. I mean, the U.S. is a lot of it is driven by money and the business and stuff. So whatever the most cost cutting is telemedicine is going on because it helps cut down costs. But in Pakistan and stuff, again, resource poor, like more resource poor settings and stuff. I think it, it, it can work really well, the telemedicine and AI as well. But I think at the same time, uh, you do need that human touch to make the final connection, putting all the dots together in place. I think it's going to be a lot of maybe supervisory role for us. As a, yeah, the AI can do all those calculations and algorithms, but it may need to still be verified by an actual human physician and stuff. Yeah, I'm still thinking it's 10 years, 50 years is so far down the road to think. But yeah, I still see that we will, I want to believe we'll still have a job in 10, 20 years uh, from now. But I think these are good tools to have. Uh, I think it will make a lot of decision-making easier. Already, I mean, when we were students and stuff, we had the periodicals and stuff. Google was coming in and stuff. Now, you know, you can find a hundred things on the phone, on your app. You want to look at any information. It's so much easier to look at it on your fingertips. Uh, so I think a lot of it is now going to be over time. It's again, more and more delegation to, you know, handheld devices. Your memory, your brain is going to be used for more for decision-making and stuff. All the information is going to be presented computer access and everything else, which is good. Yeah, you don't have to remember every dose of the medication. You can always look that up now. So yeah, I think it just continue to evolve on that. But I I, I want to believe that we will still be needed as humans uh, 10 years from now, 50 years, who knows? <laughs> I personally believe that, you know, the empathy factor when it comes to doctors yeah. is really important. And I think the patients won't let go of that. And I think doctors will still be relevant. <laughs> yeah, I think that you end of the day, you definitely need that human touch, somebody who can you can talk to in real and yeah, that can never be substituted by an artificial, artificial, you know, voice and stuff like that. So or a rob I don't know, a robot's hand touching you or something like that. So yeah, I, I want to believe we'll all be still relevant. We'll just adapt and evolve. Hmm. Our jobs will adapt and evolve, but we'll still be around. <clears throat> thank you so much for joining us and agreeing to do this interview and i hope uh, that we can have you again on the podcast and uh, thank you so much for coming no problem thanks for the opportunity thank you thank you